Um, okay. Uh, hello to everyone who's here right now. Um, I expect we'll be getting a couple more in the next few moments. Um, it's great to see everyone again. Uh, thank you for joining for uh, Rabbi Sober's Sheer on the Nazir. Um, you know, as usual, uh, we'll be pausing every now and again for questions. Uh, you're welcome to unmute yourself. That's why I've invited you to be a panelist. Um, and also, we might get to see your faces, which would be nice. Um, and then if you have uh, any questions in, you know, the intervening moments uh, between pauses, you can put them into the chat on Zoom or on Facebook Live. I'll make sure they get to Rabbi Silber. And yeah, I think with that, I'll pass it over to you to start. One second. Um, just one second. John, I teach now till 10 30. I'll call you in an hour. But... Okay, uh, let's begin. So, in the Biblical uh, Nazir, that's the topic. The after Pesach, we'll take a look at the Nazir that emerges from the Mishnah, part of the larger Mishnah, Rifka Rosenwein Mishnah project. That will be very interesting to see how the Mishnah uh, deals with Nazir, the differences. How the Mishnah presents the Nazir. And of course, there's much more material. There's a entire tractate of, of Nazir. We're looking at the biblical Nazir. Now, as far as the biblical Nazir is concerned, of course, we have the chapter in the Chumash, chapter six of Amidbar. But we have several other characters I would call Nazir characters or potentially Nazir characters. But the term Nazir only appears in conjunction with one of them. That, of course, is Shimshon, and the Torah has dedicated, uh, the Tanakh has dedicated four chapters, which is a lot, to Shimshon, who's one of the more uh, interesting characters of the Bible, certainly unusual. Last week, we start to look at another person who's not called the Nazir, but uh, there is a statement about him prior to his birth, that upon his birth, that's the first chapter of Shmuel, and that's what Hannah said. Hannah took a vow, she takes a vow that if God gives her a child, if God gives her a child, then she will dedicate the child to God. One verse in the first chapter of Shmuel. And then she adds at the end, no razor shall touch his head. Presumably that means he won't be taking haircuts. Now, of course, the one we identify with not taking haircuts the person would be Shimshon, and the Torah makes a um, makes the Nazir not cutting uh, his or her hair a central feature of the Nazarite vow, a central feature of what it means to be a Nazir to the extent that the end of the successful completion of the vow, the Torah says something quite remarkable. The Nazir at the completion of the vow, you may remember, brings three sacrifices. And a chatat, typically translated as a sin offering, though it may not be a sin offering. Uh, then we have the burnt offering, the Olah, and then there's a shlamim, peace offering. That is the sacrifice that both the priest who brings it and the person that brings it partakes of the sac, eats it, part of the sacrifice. But the Torah says, remarkably, that this particular sacrifice 
we didn't delve too deeply into it. I think in the Mishnah piece of this, we will once again the Chumash and see how the Mishnah deals with it. But at the end of the uh, successful completion of the Nazarite vow, the end of chapter six of Amidbar, it says that the Nazir brings three sacrifices and then the Nazir cuts his hair and the hair is placed uh, in, in, the, in a pot upon which the shuamim, uh, underneath is the, the peace offering sacrifice. There's some connection between the hair that's cut off and the sacrifice. In some sense, one might say that the Nazir is sacrificing part of herself for himself. It, 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 it's presented in conjunction with the sacrifices. So clearly the hair is very significant. Um, and of course, the character of Joseph that we spoke about, whom the Torah in two different places refers to as a Nazir. We talked about that, I'm not going back to that. But the image of Joseph, which is found both in the blessings of Yaakov at the end of the book of Reshit, chapter 49, and the end of the Chumash, when Moshe blesses the tribes, in each case, they speak of the head of Joseph, the head of the one who was separated from his brethren. And not only that, in the book of Dvarim, it goes beyond that. Because the tribe of Joseph, there is no tribe of Joseph. There are two tribes. There's Menashe and Ephraim. But when Moshe describes as Zotah Bracha, the tribe of Joseph, uh, it says Joseph's like an ox. His horns are like the horns of the Re'em. And with these horns, Joseph will be able to gore nations. That's the verse in Zotah Bracha, the two horns. One horn represents Ephraim, and the other, other one represents Menashe. There's two tribes of Joseph. There is no tribe of Joseph. But his two children, his two sons, Menashe and Ephraim, are two tribes. But notice how the blessings in Zotah Bracha describe them. They are the horns of Joseph's head. So Joseph's head, the symbol, we think of Joseph, we think of Joseph's head. And of course, the Nazir, the Torah speaks of Rosh If he came into contact with the dead, he has defiled his head. Rosh Nizro, his head, his hair. So that's very striking that the Nazir seems to be the hair. If we ask, if we ask ourselves the question, which is a very interesting question, what is the um, what is the key element of the Nazir? Because he can't drink wine, nor does the Nazir come in contact with the dead, nor does the Nazir cut, cut hair. Which of those three represents the Nazir best? I think when you read the story of Shimshon, it's obvious that what represents the Nazir best in the Shimshon case is certainly his hair. His hair is what gives him the strength. He's not allowed to cut his hair. When he cuts his hair, he loses his strength. The question is, what about other stories of the of the, what about in the Torah itself? That's a very good question. We'll leave that for the future. But in the case of Shmuel, I come back to Shmuel now. Chana took the vow. Now I wanted to add something else about Shmuel here, then get to a third point about Shmuel. But the point I wanted to make, which is very important, when you open up the Chumash and you look at the Nazir, and this is the 
Mishnah deals with extensively. What's important to note is that in the, in the, in the Chumash, you become a Nazir by taking a vow. The Torah calls it the vow of the Nazarite. Now in the Torah, this is a vow that one takes for a set amount of time. The time is not determined by the Torah, but the person who takes the vow is determining the length of the vow. And then the Torah spends most of its time what happens when you complete it. So it's a temporary situation. We spoke about that. Um, but in the but in the, in the narratives of the Bible, it doesn't appear to be that way at all. Shimshon is, is a Nazir before he's born until his death. And when it comes to Shmuel, once again, it doesn't seem to be limited by time. I will dedicate the child to God and no, no razor shall, shall touch his head. Sounds like that's, his, that's the way he will be his entire life. It's not about a particular length of time. So, but it takes the form of a vow. Even in the case of Shmuel, it takes the form of a vow, except that it's not a vow that he takes. As we find in the Shimshon story, somebody else, somebody else sets up the, Nazir, the, the, the Nazir. In the case of Shimshon, it's the angel who instructs his mother that not to drink wine even before he's born, when he's in utero, because he's going to be a, he's a Nazir in the womb. He's a Nazir before he's born. In the case of Chana, it's not a Nazir before he's born, but the vow was taken before he's born. In fact, she's not pregnant at the time either. She's praying for the child. So that's very striking. You get to the Mishnah, the Mishnah will pick this idea up. That, that's the second point. Now, I wanted to make another point about Shmuel in terms of seeing him as a Nazir. Let me be very clear. The book of Shmuel never suggests he's a Nazir. I mean, yes, she does say, no razor shall cut his, touch his head. But in the, in the stories of Shmuel, there is no sense, at least that, no sense that I have in the stories of Shmuel that it, it, it is, the practice of a Nazir is relevant. It's not like Shimshon. In the case of Shimshon, the practice is relevant. That's the whole story. It revolves around his hair. If his hair is cut, he loses his strength. When it starts to grow back, he begins to regain his strength. And we spoke about that. It's not just the hair, obviously. But it's presented in terms of the hair. The hair represents the fact that Shimshon is a Nazir. But when you look at the story of Shmuel, in the great book of Shmuel, at least as far as I can see, there's no direct sense of Shmuel being a Nazir. But I did want to make one point about Shmuel, which I think um, reminds me very much of the Shimshon story. Let me just make this, this one little point, then we'll move on. I don't think it's a little point, but it's a point. Anyway, um, the point that I ended with last week is that Chana has two prayers. In the first prayer, she prays to have a child. And she says, it's only one verse long. If you give me a child, I will dedicate the child to God. Strange, I'll give the child away as it were. She gives the child away. I mean, she still maintains contact with him. She brings him a coat periodically. But fundamentally, if you give me a child, I will, I will give the child to God. No razor shall touch his head. That's one prayer. Then after she has the child, in the beginning of the second chapter, we have a 10-verse 
it's called the prayer, but it's It's a poem. And remarkably, as we discussed last week, it says very little, if nothing at all, about a woman having a child. It does mention one half of one verse, the barren one has given birth to seven. But outside of that, nobody who reads that poem, if you didn't connect it to Chana, would ever connect it to Chana. In fact, some of these scholars think that it wasn't written for about, it's written for something else completely, and that the writer of the book of Shmuel includes it in the story of Chana, which of course they make a big fuss about, but actually it's relatively irrelevant because in point of fact, it is in the book of Shmuel. On the contrary, why did the writer then uh, adopt that poem if it has no relevance and put it into the Chana story? That's the really the important question. But what it's about, is the way God wishes to or expects the world to be run. That's what her poem's about. The bringing down of the haughty and the wicked and the raising up of the meek and the righteous. That's her poem. The last verse of the poem though, which is why it's there, the very end of that poem, remarkably, God should give strength to God's king and raise up the anointed one. And of course, at this point, there is no king. The book is about kingship, but there's not, not as of yet no king. Now the kingmaker, so Shmuel is described as a Nazir. Let's, let's, let's say that, at least elements of the Nazir, no razor shall cut his hair. But when Hannah prays, she prays in the second chapter, she prays for a king, a, a human being who understands God's values and can implement them in our world. But she is very explicit about it. This is a king. So the question I raised last week, and I made a suggestion, these two different prayers of Chana, the prayer of chapter one, when she talks about her son being dedicated, dedicated to God, but called a quasi-Nazir. And in chapter two, she prays, it's a prayer. It says, Vatit Palel. It's not just a Thanksgiving psalm. It's a prayer, Vatit Palel Tomar in chapter two. And there she prays for a king. That's the prayer. That's a prayer. God should give strength to God's king. God should choose someone to be king who will understand what God wants and be able to implement. Now the question is, what is the relationship between those two prayers? So the claim that I made last week, I want to repeat this, <clears throat> is that the two are actually contradictory. In other words, that the, 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 the opposite, if you want to understand the Nazir, the opposite of the Nazir is the Melech. They're completely opposites. The Nazir is the, the quintessential outsider. Now, there are many kinds of outsiders. Most extreme outsider, I would say, in a sense, is Shimshon. For Shimshon, in no manner, shape, or form, lives amongst the Jews. In fact, quite the opposite. They try to kill him. And they tie him up, as does the Lila, tie him up. So the Nazir is the ultimate outsider. And you think about it, ultimate break from his nation. He may help the nation, but he doesn't live amongst the nation and ultimate break with his family. And that's reflected, I pointed out, in one of the main rules that the Torah has concerning the Nazir, namely, he may not come in contact with any, any dead, any corpses, including his own family, including his own parents. He's not allowed the Tamei that's what the Torah says, like the high priest. He has a separate mission. The high priest, of course, represents the Jewish people. 
the Nazir is the opposite, but they have something in common. They have the rules, the strictures of the high priest to evolve upon the Nazir as well. The Melech is the opposite, as is the priest. The Melech is a role. It's an institutional role, as is the priest. The Melech represents the people. The Torah makes it very clear. You can't choose a king, says the Torah, from, from afar. In chapter 17 of Tavarim, when it talks about the, rule, the, role, the rules of the king, it doesn't really talk about the role of the king, but it talks about the rules of the king. So the idea that the Nazir may not come in contact with any dead, no funerals, not even his own parents. And you see this in the Shimshon story too, by the way, the emphasis in the Shimshon story that he doesn't tell his parents the truth. Parents say, why do you want to marry a Philistine woman? Can you find a Jewish woman? And Shimshon, they don't know. This is from God. He seeks some kind of pretext. He doesn't tell them. He encounters the, the lion with the beehive inside the lion. He doesn't tell his parents. When his wife, first wife says to him, tell me the riddle. They're pressuring her to tell the riddle. Threatening to kill her, actually. Tell us the riddle. He says to her first, I didn't tell my own parents. I'm going to tell you. In other words, the idea that he's separated from his parents is something that appears very often in the beginning of the Shimshon story. And... Um, And um, yeah, so that's the king and, and the king and the Nazir are actually the opposites. Now here's the point I want to make about Shmuel. The story of Shmuel is called the Book of Samuel. Of course, the, the Book of Samuel, actually, Samuel dies in by chapter 25, he's dead. The book is Aleph and Beth is either 55 or 57 chapters, depending on how you count them up. But he dies before half the book is completed. But he's, 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 we, we introduced him in chapter one. He, he, he rules the nation in one chapter, not even a whole chapter, chapter seven of book one. And then in chapter eight, the people want a king. And that's where Shmuel actually, there's very little attention paid to Shmuel as the actual leader. I mean, there's some attention paid. He's the great prophet and he's the leader of the people. And he fights the Philistines through prayer in chapter seven. That's about it. And then beginning in chapter eight, beginning in chapter eight, he is a central figure between chapter eight and chapter 16, I would say. He's a central figure. The people go to Samuel and say, give us a king. And what these chapters are about, chapter eight through 16, is that Samuel was in dilemma. I can't get into the whole book of Shmuel now, which is about kingship. But here's the point about Shmuel. Shmuel is a great prophet. He believes in prophecy, very loyal to God. Then the people come to Shmuel and say, give us a king. And one of the central features of the book of Shmuel, and the central feature of Shmuel himself in the book of Shmuel, is that Shmuel is torn. Because on one hand, the people want a king, and Shmuel is opposed to kingship. And he has his reasons. First of all, because the king will abuse the people. The king will take the possibility, the opportunity is too great for the king to resist. He has opportunity. He has motive because he wants to keep his power and he wants to grow in power. So, um, so therefore it is, therefore it is uh, too dangerous and Shmuel is opposed to kingship uh, 
clearly. On the other hand, when he goes back to God, he complains. God says to Shmuel, listen to the people, obey the people. So he's torn. And this is actually, I would say, in the book of Shmuel, in thinking about Shmuel, this is the, the, key, uh, the, the key issue for Shmuel's life. What do you do when on one hand you have a mission? And the mission is to appoint the king. In fact, Shmuel appoints both kings. He appoints Saul and appoints David. That's his mission. But it's a mission he doesn't want to fulfill. And I argue in my book that actually the fact that he doesn't want to fulfill it actually at the end of the day colors the way he behaves towards, towards the one he does appoint, which is King Saul. And then ultimately the failure of Saul, part of the failure of Saul can be laid directly at the feet of Samuel. My point is that what's interesting, I think, here is that we think about the character, for example, of Shimshon, the Nazir. The Nazir, what I rep how I represented it, is a poem there, Samson Agonistes. Basically, on one hand, he's the ultimate loner because he, he can't be with his people, can't be with the Jews, and he can't be with the Philistines. I mean, he operates within Philistine society. He just uses them, which is his mission. But the problem is that precludes any kind of human intimacy. And when he gets into deep trouble, actually, Shimshon, his downfall, one might say, is when he falls in love. That's chapter 16. Now he has poor taste in women, that is sure. But he falls in love. And that is the, that is the, uh, the inner struggle of, of Shimshon. And my point is that the, the outsider has struggles. In the case of Shimshon, the struggle is, can he in fact maintain his intimacy with God in light of the fact that he falls in love with someone who is quite the opposite of God, who is part of God's, part of the Philistines who are God's enemies in the Shimshon story. In the case of Shmuel, I argue that Morogo Yalel Rosho actually the significance of that for the Shmuel narrative is that he's the opposite of the king. Nazir and Melech are opposites. And this plays out in the story in a most significant way. True, there's no specific mention of him being a Nazir. So then why mention it altogether? Why does the book of Shmuel mention it? One, she has one sentence about her prayer and she says, I want my son, no razor shall cut his hair. So it is relevant because since the book is about kingship and Hannah herself prays for a king, but now we have a problem that the one who is going to be setting up the kingship as it were, people go to Shmuel, you, you, you get for us a king. That the one who is supposed to set up the kingship is the person who is diametrically opposed to kingship. And therein lies great tension within the Shmuel story which has all kinds of interesting implications. What do you do when you have a mission? Doesn't actually, one might say, he doesn't, so he doesn't want to fulfill the mission. And there's several reasons for it. He believes truly that it's not in the best interest of the people or of God to do this. On the other hand, God says, listen to them. God says, and then he has a personal motive. He has his own children whom he appointed as judges. They are utterly corrupt. But he doesn't necessarily see that. So we have in the great book of Shmuel, in terms of the character of Shmuel, therein lies the, the tension, the inner tension 
within Shmuel, at the end of the day, it's not a story in my view, the book that has a happy ending. At the end of the day, uh, the downfall of Saul is also the downfall of Shmuel. And among other things that I discussed, and I've mentioned this several times, and with, I'll stop here to this point and take comments or questions, but it's very striking that in the story of the downfall of Saul, and we read this very recently in Shabbat Zohar, the Haftorah, the Parshat Zohar is taken from the book of Shmuel. It's Saul's failed, failure to destroy Amalek, and Saul loses the kingship. At the end of that story, famously, Shmuel is walking away from Saul, and then it says, he grabbed onto his coat and it was torn. So the plain reading of the text is Shmuel's walking away and probably Saul maybe grabs for, 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 for Shmuel, or maybe Shmuel himself tears his coat. And then Samuel says, God has torn away the kingship from you and given it to your friend who is better than you. And among many other things to say about the story, what is rather remarkable is that the symbol of Saul's downfall is the torn coat. But the torn coat isn't Saul's coat. The torn coat is Samuel's coat. And the point that I've made several times is that with the downfall of Saul is the downfall of Samuel because Samuel tries to control Saul. When it comes to Saul, Samuel sees himself not just as a partner, but as a, as a, as a majority stakeholder. He's gonna tell him everything he has to do. And he doesn't leave room Saul the freedom to do what Saul has to do. And then the next king of Israel, David, is an autonomous king. David has a prophet in the court, but the prophet never tells him what to do. The prophet corrects him after he's made mistakes, yes, but doesn't tell him what to do. So to come back to my point about Samuel the Nazir, the claim I'm making is that, yes, on one hand, it doesn't seem to play out in the story at all. There's no story about his hair, cutting hair, drinking wine, coming into contact with the dead or any of that. But there is something else about it, which is the character of the Nazir as I understand it, namely the outsider, and which is particularly interesting in terms of his role, which is to appoint the ultimate insider. And therein lies the great tension within Shmuel and one of the many great issues that the book of Shmuel raises. Now, let me stop here for a moment at this point. And if there are any comments or questions, I'll take them now. And then we'll move on to another character who actually the Mishnah sees as one of the primary Nazirim. It's very interesting because in the text, we don't see it, but I have some suggestions. Um, okay, are there any comments or questions? So you could say that the the phrase about the ta'ar is uh, like having a symbol um, that points you in the direction of highlighting the tension between having a king or not having a king without even opening, without even anybody saying a word. Right, I mean, Khan's initial prayer, well, the, the, the point of the book of Shmuel is, is this, that the, well, the way the book begins, the book is, when you read the book of Shmuel, we always have to keep in mind two things. I mean, it's a, it's one of the great, it's an actual tradition, maybe it's, it's way up high on the list of one of the greatest things ever written. But what's very important to remember in, in studying Shmuel is this, the book has to be read <laughs> from two perspectives. 
there's the perspective of the characters involved in the book. And the writer of this book it presents both the major characters and even some of the minor characters in incredibly interesting ways. That's number one. But there's another point about the book of Shmuel, which we can easily forget. It's also a very much a, a, a political book. At every turn, we always have to remember that we're looking at it from both perspectives, but from the human perspective on one hand and from the politi political God. perspective on the other. And the fact is that, yes, that's exactly the point. The Nazir, from a political standpoint, is, out, is the outsider. So we say Samson judges the people. He judges them in the sense, whatever judge, he's not a judge. He leads the people in the sense, he defeats Israel's enemies. But there's no sense until his death when he's buried with his father and his father's grave. But basically, he's the ultimate, he's not part of the nation. The king is the opposite. The king is the ultimate insider. The king is, in fact, the king does give up his family in, in a sense because the people become his family but they do become his family and is passed down from father to son typically. It's the opposite of the Nazir. Nazir doesn't come into contact with his parents. The king, the whole point of kingship is it is a, a kind of hereditary institution. It's an institution, which it's is why it's a dynasty, just as the priesthood is. Let me just, just take one second to add a point over here. When the people go to Samuel and they say, give us a king and they give a reason, they're very happy with, they love Samuel, he's great. But in chapter eight, it says when Samuel became old, he became old and his sons we know are no good. He doesn't know what it says, his sons were crooked. Fine. So, so they go to Samuel and say, you are old, your sons are no good. Give us a king like the other nations. That's what they say. Now the question is, of course, so it seems that one of the motivators is, look, if your sons were good, we, we, we wouldn't be we wouldn't ask for a king, but we need a king because your sons are no good. So my understanding is this: that what they're saying is, look, you're you're a holy man, you're a great prophet. But the problem is that if we have a prophet leader, every generation needs a new job search. There's no guarantee that the child of a spiritual person will be a great spiritual person. In the Bible, there are very few, if any, cases of that. But we. So we don't want to do a job search every generation. We want stability. Because a bad prophet is a bad person is not a prophet. But a bad king can be a king. So if you get kingship, it will pass down automatically from one generation to the next. The people are willing to give up, might say, spirituality for, for, stability. for, for stability. And that's marked in a simple way. There's a reason that the, the kingly garments, the robes of the king are significant. Whoever wears the king's robes is in fact the king, the same as the priesthood. You can have a, a good priest, you can have a bad priest, but they're all priests. You put on those garments, when, when the garments are upon them, says the Talmud, the priesthood is upon them. And that's what it is. So the, that's part of the book. And Shmuel doesn't want that. Shmuel doesn't believe in that kind of leadership. Shmuel's a Moses figure. The great spiritual person should be the leader. Let's lead through prayer and faith and all that. That's one of the tensions in the book. So at every turn in the book, we always have to remember that it's, it's also, a, also a political book, it's both. And the interesting relationship between the political on one hand and the personal on the other is one of the big issues in the book of Shmuel. It's a very interesting question. Um, so that's what I want to say about the, yes, the Morello Yalel Rochelle. It's very, the first, right beginning of the book, you already have this issue of what kind of leadership are we going to look for? And Hannah herself, 
who says my child will be a kind of nausea is the very same person who in chapter two says we need the king. So Chana, unlike her son, Shmuel's against kingship. Chana's not against it. Her prayer suggests she very much prays for it. That's a prayer. She wants to have a king, but king has to represent God's values. Chana believes that's possible. Shmuel believes it's not possible. He believes the king, by definition, must become corrupt. As he says explicitly in chapter eight, he will take, he will take, he will take, he will take, and he will take. And then you'll complain too late. And then later on, he says more than that. You have a king. God, God is your king. So it's also a heresy. It's also idolatry of sorts for Shmuel. And this is the guy who's supposed to, who's supposed to work with the king. Well, he can't work with the king because he's against the king. At the end of the day, it's a failure. And the failure, in my view, can be laid at the feet, not just of Saul, but I think primarily at the feet of Shmuel. But that's one of the themes of my book. Anyway, okay. Anybody else for a comment or question? Uh, yeah. Is it uh, possible yes. that there is a kind of an evolution of the concept of Nazir from Chumash to Shimshon to Shmuel in the sense of it, 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 uh, that, that, uh, not, uh, having a Loyalamura al Rosho is an allusion actually to Shimshon to say he was a warrior. My son, even though his hair is not going to be cut, is not going to be a warrior. As you said before, he, when he is king like, he, fights the plishtim through prayer. So it's a kind of a, 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 a saying, it's, it's a, an evolution of the zirut because a, uh, how do you serve God uh, without uh, it becoming uh, uh, something that turns on you? And, and, and uh, I, I'm not sure, I, I'm just sort of playing. No, no, I think you're welcome. Well, let's say this. First of all, the first point you make that the story of Shimshon and the story of Khan are deeply related to each other, I think that's clear. When we spoke a little bit about it last week, there's more to say about it, even to the degree that when Ailey says, you drunken woman, get out of here. I'm not drinking, she says, I don't drink. On the contrary, it's, it's what comes out of my mouth. My soul is being poured out in my prayer. So the, it clearly is, is a contrast, I would say, between Mrs. Manoch, who doesn't pray for a child, and Hannah the first woman who prays for a child. Our husband isn't interested, but she is interested. There's certainly kind of evolution, as you call it, in that sense. And I also think the Mishnah, when we get to the Mishnah, the Mishnah places Shmuel. The last Mishnah in Masech and Nazir is about Shmuel. So in other words, they, and Shimshon is, I'll have to get into the details. Shimshon is sort of, if not bypassed, minimized in the Mishnah. And the Gemara also. The Gemara's Mishnah is bothered by Shimshon as a model. So I think there is something for, to be said for that. I didn't want to add one point though, which I think is a very important point, when, which, which we can't know. In other words, what we don't know is someone opens up the Torah. Torah says, someone takes a vow to be a Nazir, man or woman. So they don't drink wine, they don't come in contact with the dead, they don't cut their hair. If they become tummy, they bring special sacrifices, start over again. And then there's the concluding sacrifices and the whole ritual. And it never says what a Nazir is, actually. But my point, I, and this is, I think, an important point, which we can't know. What does the biblical reader, the, the, the Torah is addressing a, a, some, 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 some reader who lives a couple of thousand years ago. What does, what is, what does that reader know? In other words, the, the reader may, may have, the, the one who's reading the Chumash thousands of, 2,000 years ago, what do we assume? Do we assume that the reader knows what a Nazir is? And what the Torah is saying is, you know what the Nazir is. 
but let me tell you how we're going to frame it. So the, 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 there's an assumption. It's the same thing with kingship. The Torah never says what a king does. Don't have too many horses. Don't have too much money. Don't take them down to Egypt. Have a safer Torah. Read the Torah. Shouldn't be haughty. Okay, fine. What is his job? The Torah never says what his job is. The book of Shmuel says what his job is. He's a warrior. He's a commander in chief of the army. And he's a judge. He runs the judiciary or whatever it is. So that's what the Torah says. That's what the book of Shmuel says. But the Torah never says. And my point is, but maybe, but what does that reader know? It clearly, there's a lot of things that the biblical reader knew that we don't know. There's a whole bunch of, remember, most of the, I presume most of the Torah is responding not just to written texts of the ancient Near East, but to oral traditions. And we have no idea. The brother, Vachot Tuvokai, and Tuvokai's sister was named Nama. We read this, we say, what does that mean? But maybe the person reading this knows a lot about Nama. Maybe there are a hundred stories about Nama, which the Torah doesn't spell out. But yeah, but, but the assumption is that the reader knows it. So this is a very good question. What does the reader know? So in terms of the evolution, when the Torah says about the Nazir, what is the assumption? Is the Nazir a warrior? Is the Nazir a saint? Is it, what is the Nazir? It's very hard to figure this out, but I will agree with you certainly that the Mishnah certainly sees that way. The Mishnah has more of a focus on Shmuel than on Shimshon, despite the fact that the only real Nazir of the Bible is actually Shimshon. But Shimshon becomes, and we'll talk about this at length, how the, what the Mishnah and the Gemara do with Shimshon, which is extremely interesting. So we'll have to park that. But thanks, that comment is an important one. And we will try to deal with your question about evolution, et cetera. And it comes, it's, it comes up in terms of how the rabbinic tradition chooses to see the Nazir and the differences. My focus now is just on the biblical people who we call a Nazir. When you get to the Mishnah, then we raise your question. Okay, what does the Mishnah make of all this? Or how does the Mishnah see the Chumash? You know? Why doesn't the Chumash tell you what a Nazir is? <laughs> That's a good question. You know? um, Okay, but we'll get back to that. That's a very central question. Um, okay, let me make two other points now about the biblical nausea. Again, it doesn't say the word nausea, but this is, it. this is interesting in terms of the Mishnah. I'll just mention this one point. The Mishnah in tractate nausea, it's a whole tractate, and the Mishnah distinguishes, well, actually, the Mishnah has three kinds of nausea, but let's, let, me, let me mention two. It's the nausea in the Chumash, who takes a vow to become a Nazir for a set amount of time, a limited amount of time. And at the end of the completion of the vow, there's a whole ritual, a bunch of sacrifices, cutting the hair, etc. That's what the Chumash says. But what about a person who, like, let's say, Shimshon, Shmuel, the, the biblical stories don't seem to think that the Nazir is temporary. In fact, the verse in Amos, that I mentioned it a few times, it's the Haftorah for Vayeshev, when almost complains about the people, God says, I established amongst you prophets and deceiving. It's the first, first chapter of Amos. And you told the prophets not to prophesy. And you gave the Nazirim wine to uh, wine to drink. So the verse in Amos, Ratashku and Nazirim Yayin, it doesn't sound like it compares them to prophets. Now the prophet is not prophet for 30 days. The prophet is, who's that guy over there? That's a, that's a prophet. It sounds like the Nazir and the Nabi are pretty much in the same boat. Are, we have amongst the people, we have priests, we have prophets, we have Nazirim, etc. It doesn't sound like it's a temporary state you put yourself in. In any event, um, so the Mishnah distinguishes 
and there's a whole literature about this in the Gemara and we've shown them at the works. Uh, we'll get to some of this. It's a very interesting issue. But the mission is distinguished between the, the Nazir, who's a, who's a say 30 day Nazir, Stam Nazir is a Shoshi. So I want to be a Nazir. It doesn't specify time. 30 days. That's what the Mishnah says. We'll get to all these things. What about if a person says, I want to be a Nazir my entire life? Can you be a Nazir your whole life? I take a vow to be a Nazir my entire life. Not a specific number of days. It's what the Mishnah and the Gemara call a Nazir Olam. And the a Nazir forever. So you can be a Nazir forever. But the model in the Mishnah is not Shimshon, believe it or not. He would be the perfect model. But Shimshon never took a vow. The actual model, believe it's unbelievable, but the model that the Mishnah has chosen and the Gemara chooses for the Nazir Olam is not Shimshon, it's rather somebody else, maybe even a more dubious character than Shimshon, uh, and that is Avshalom. David's son, Avshalom, is the, um, is the model for the Nazir Olam. Now, where is this coming from, that Avshalom is a Nazir? When you think of Avshalom, the first thing that comes to mind for most of us would not be he is a Nazir. I mean, he's the great rebel. He attempts to overthrow David, to kill his father, to assume the kingship, etc. But the Mishnah has, and the Talmud, has Avshalom as the Nazir, who's the eternal Nazir. And there are two reasons for it, and I wanted to add a third point about Avshalom that I think is interesting. First of all, Avshalom comes up in the second book of Shmuel. He is, we find him in the, of course, he first appears in the story, the famous story in chapter 14 of Shmuel Bet of Amnon and Tamar. Amnon rapes his half-sister Tamar, who is Avshalom's full sister. And after that takes place, um, King David, who sent Tamar to Amnon because Amnon said he wasn't feeling well, let my sister come and make some food for me. Maybe I'll revive my spirits. And King David doesn't do anything after Avshalom is very angry. And Avshalom takes Tamar in and he, Tamar is walking in the streets crying. And David does not take her back to, the, to, to his castle for whatever reason. Avshalom takes care of her and says, be silent, my sister. And he, he watches over her and he, care, he, he, he tends, tends to her, etc. And he waits two years. Now, he waits two years. And then after two years, he goes to the king. He says, I'm making a big party. It's in chapter 14 of 2 Samuel. I'm making a big party. Come to my party. Oh, my son, I don't want to bother you. You know, when I travel, I have a whole retinue. I don't want to travel you. It's too much for you. Please come. I don't really want to come. If you can't come, send my brother Amnon. Why do you want him? Send Amnon. Send Amnon. So Amnon goes to the party, at which point Avshalom commands his people to kill Amnon. And then he runs away. Now, of course, the question when you read the story is, let's say David had said, I will come. <laughs> David, Amnon is sent instead of David. But what if David hypothetically had come? Of course, he doesn't. Maybe Avshalom knows he won't come. Maybe that's the cleverness of Avshalom. But in any event, so Avshalom, Avshalom runs away. And then he's living in exile. His, his wife is the daughter of the king of Geshur. He's married to royalty, not Jewish royalty. And then David is feeling, David is upset. His son is in exile. So in chapter 14, Yoav goes, and um, chapter 14, 
Avshalom is chapter. I'm known as in chapter 13 of Second Samuel. In chapter 14, Yoav the general goes to David and tries to arrange for Avshalom to come back. There's a whole story there. At the end of the day, David says to Yoav, he, he can come back, but I'm, he can't see me. He, he's under house arrest. He can go back to his home. Nothing will happen to him. Let him stay house arrest. Fine. At which point, and this is in chapter 14, Avshalom waits two years. Once again, waits two years. And Second Samuel chapter 14, uh, let's find this verse. Towards the end of chapter 14, he sends, so Avshalom sends a message to Yoab, I want to see the king. Yoab does not respond. Sends another message, I want to see the king. Yoab does not respond. Chapter 15, chapter 14, verse 30, Avshalom commands his servants, look at the Yoav's field is next to mine. He has a field of a barley field. Burn it down. So Avshalom's servants burned down Yoav's field. I mean, Yoav is not a guy you want to start up with, but that's what he does. He burns down his field. Then Yoav gets up, goes to Avshalom. Why did your people burn down my field? Avshalom said, look, I've sent you two messages already and you didn't respond. Why did you bring me back here? What's the point? I want to see the king. If he, if he, if he thinks I'm a sinner, let him kill me. Yoav goes to the king. The king calls Avshalom and the king kisses Avshalom. That's the end of chapter 14. In chapter 15, Avshalom begins to plan to overthrow the king. He has his people come in front of him. He's had chariots coming from people who's shouting in front of him. Would, would, I, would I be a judge that Avshalom? I wish I could become the king. I would judge people. I'd be a fair judge. He goes over to people. What are you here for? For judgment. Where are you from? From that place, you'll never get judgment from this king. And the people are swayed to Avshalom. Now it's chapter 15, verses 7 and verse 8. But he became our, after 40 years, 40 years from when, who knows? So some say 40 years from when they first asked for a king. Avshalom said to the king, Let me go to Hebron and fulfill my vow. I made, a, I made a vow to God in Hebron. When I was in exile, I took a vow. If God allows me to return, and the king says to Avshalom, go in peace. He goes to Hebron. When he gets to Hebron, he declares himself king. Now, I just wanted to talk about the story of Avshalom a bit and to see what the, you know, what the Mishnah Gemara might have had, might, might have had in mind. Maybe we'll talk a little bit more about it next week as well. <clears throat> so first of all, Let's start with Avshalom's hair, which I didn't read about. We all know that Avshalom has very long hair. He doesn't cut his hair. Well, actually, he does cut his hair. At the end of the day, his hair is, gonna, is what gets him killed because he, his hair is going to get stuck in a tree. One of the animal he's riding on in the war of David and Avshalom, he's, he gets entangled in the, in the tree. He's hanging in the tree. And Yoah finds out about it and commands that Avshalom be killed, despite the fact that King David had said, don't, don't harm the boy. But Yoav has him killed. That's that. But the point is, 
he has very long hair. And his long hair is described, um, let's see, find, let's find that verse, Absalom's long hair. Um, here is Absalom's long hair. Where's the first mention is long hair? We can find his long hair. I believe it's in chapter 16, let me see. Not finding the long hair. Let's find that verse. That's an important verse for us. Why can't I find it? Anybody find the long hair of Absalom? Where is it? Where is this long hair? Why can't I find this long hair? I can't give me 30 seconds to find this, otherwise I'll tell you what um, it says. No, it says it's um, in chapter 18. 18. Um, when he's killed. Okay. Which, word, which verse? Nine. No, no, that's where he's killed. That's where his hair gets okay. stuck, that I know. But earlier it mentions his hair. What it says is this, Avshalom was very beautiful. I'll tell you what the verse says. We'll find the verse. Avshalom was very beautiful. And he had very long hair. And from time to time, he would cut he would cut his hair and weigh it. It gives the, it gives the measurement of his hair. I can't find this verse now. I don't know why I can't find it. But in any event, that is what it says, and we'll find it. He had very long hair. He's very beautiful, very handsome person, most handsome person with very long hair. He would cut his hair from time to time, and he would weigh his hair. It's got to be earlier, but for some reason I can't find this verse. Okay, I don't know why I can't find it. My my mistake. It's it's here. We'll, we'll find the verse. It's an important verse for us. So here's the point: the fact that he has very long hair and doesn't cut it. Um, he always cut, but he cuts it periodically. So it's, in Mishnah, chapter, it's in chapter fifteen, I think, pasuk uh, thirty. Uh, 30 or 31 uh, 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 um, 14 chapter 14 right I'm sorry chapter uh, 14 where is it um, um, chapter 14 pasuk 26 26 yeah. um, yes yes so even 25 yes yes ish yafe b'chol Yisrael from, from, head, from head to toe, he had no, no blemish. Verse 26, this is the verse. When he would cut his hair. He would cut his hair from time to time. He became too heavy. He had to cut his hair. He would weigh his hair. It weighed 200 shekels by royal weight. Fine. That verse, that Avshalom doesn't cut his hair, but he cuts it yomim la yomim. So the Talmud has a dispute. How often did he cut his hair? One says every week. 
one says every month, and one, the accepted view is he would cut it once a year. The idea of, cut, of not cutting his hair and cutting it once a year for the Talmud, believe it or not, sees Avshalom as a Nazir who's a Nazir for life. This is the prototype of the Nazir for life, not Shimshon, but rather Avshalom, from which the Gemara concludes something else very interesting, which is that even though the Nazir is not allowed to cut his hair, but when it comes to the Nazir Olam, the Nazir forever, then the Nazir is allowed to cut hair, but only once a year. And it's not even clear that actually he's cutting off all his hair. It, it, it says it was very heavy, so maybe he only cuts off most of his hair. But this is the source, believe it or not, for the, for the Nazir, who's a, who's a Nazir for life. Now, I wanted to make two points about Avshalom as the Nazir. First of all, the very fact that the Mishnah and the Gemara take Avshalom to be the prototype of the Nazir Olam certainly, I think, raises a question, what does the Mishnah and the Gemara think about the Nazir? Because whatever you think of Avshalom, and I have my own particular take on him, which is much more positive than most people, I think he's a good guy who goes bad and part of the going bad is his father's fault. David mishandles Avshalom completely. Avshalom initially is a kind of heroic person. The story of his sister, what he does, he waits, he kills the, he, only the bad guy, he's waiting for justice, he takes her in and all that. But then David, for whatever reason, he loves Avshalom, but he, he, he mishandles it. And Avshalom goes off in a different direction. He says, I wanna be the king because the present king we have is not much of a king, he's not a judge. He's, 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 he's no good. That's what he actually believes. Then he goes off in the direction of self-centeredness. But in any event, when you think of Avshalom as the great, as the Nazir, Shmuel is one thing, but Avshalom is quite different. And so it suggests that the Mishnah Gemara take a much dimmer view of the Nazir than we might think emerges from the biblical text. In any event, I wanna make two other points about Avshalom. First of all, I, We've spoken about the Nazir as one who breaks off from society in the Chumash, not just society, but even his own family. He doesn't go to his own parents' funeral. Now, in the case of Avshalom, it's well beyond that. It's not about not going to his father's funeral. It's about trying to ensure that his father has a funeral and the sooner the better. But the idea of Avshalom breaking from his father, trying to assassinate his father, is a very important question in the book of Shmuel. And I'll, I'll tell you what it is. Because Avshalom, let's say Avshalom kills David, or David dies in the war, and Avshalom becomes the king. There'd be two different ways to read that, actually. Well, but we, we, we know the inside story, but, but from someone on the outside who reads it might say to herself, hey, you know, uh, okay, David died and his son took over. You could see Avshalom as David's successor. The same way, by the way, in the book of Shmuel, interestingly enough, you could see David as Saul's successor. He is Saul's son-in-law. And in fact, if he and his wife have a baby, Michal has a baby, that child will be David's son and Saul's grandson, will unify the two kingdoms. David doesn't want to do that. Michal has no children to the day of her death, it says, and it's not an accident in my view. So therefore, it's an, it would have been an opportunity, but that's not how Avshalom sees it. This is one of the big issues in the book. 
Avshalom doesn't see himself as continuing David's line. He sees himself as replacing David. That's number one. And number two, I want to make one of the points about Avshalom as a quasi-Nazir figure, which is this. When Avshalom is brought back to Jerusalem through the, uh, inter, through, through the, uh, through the intermediary who was, who was the general, Yoav, and he's in house, so he's staying in this house. The king refuses to see him. That is to say, when the king refuses to see you, to recognize you or to, re, or to forgive you, and Avshalom doesn't want to just come back home. He's already determined, it would appear, to have some kind of position of power, perhaps even the kingship at this point. He waits two years. He also waited two years to kill Amnon. He's, he asked Yoav twice to bring him to the king. Yoav doesn't want to get involved. Yoav did his thing. He brought him back to Jerusalem. Have a nice life. Stay at your home. House arrest or whatever. So what does Avshalom do? He burns down Yoav's field. That gets Yoav's attention. Why'd you burn down my field? To get your attention. And it worked. I got your attention. Bring me to the king. If he kills me, he kills me. I don't care. You bring me to the king. He knows David is not going to kill him at the end of the day. David doesn't kill his children. It's not David. But what's interesting is he burns down his field. Now, who's another person who burns down fields in the Bible? I can only think of one. That's, of course, Shimshon. Right? Shimshon's fighting against the Philistines. They, the um, the his Judeans tie him up. Says he burns through the ropes. And then he takes a bunch of foxes and he puts torches between their tails, ties the foxes together, and they run through the Philistine fields, burning up the fields. In fact, his name is Shimshon. In Shimshon, we have the word Shemesh. Heat, light, heat. That's what Shimshon represents. So in the case of Avshalom, it's very striking. You have the long hair. You have the person who is opposed to his father or breaks from his father. You have the fire imagery and you have something else with Avshalom also, which I started with this in chapter, um, in chapter 14. He goes to the king and he says to the king, listen, I want to go to Hebron. I took a vow. I took a nether, he says. That if you bring me back, I want, to repay, I want to repay my vow. Says David, go in peace. Words that I'm sure he would regret now, but go in peace, my son. So the point is, we also have the vow and the nether. So we have the nether, we have the hair, we have the fire imagery, we have the breaking with the father. So in that sense, yes, one can say that Avshalom is a kind of Nazir figure. The word Nazir is never mentioned, of course, from which the Gemara actually derives certain halachic principles about the Nazir who's a Nazir forever. He is allowed to cut his hair or maybe to, to lighten his hair from time to time. It's a whole discussion. Maybe when we get to the Mishnah, we'll talk about that. So that's another, I would say, another Nazir character, not a Nazir. He ne never says the word Nazir. Now, is it is it also possible that uh, uh, he's a Nazir character because in chapter fifteen, uh, when he says Kineder Kineder Nadar Abdecha, it's Viavadati as Hashem. In other words, that his Neder was to serve God as the biblical uh, Nazir, uh, Nazir is to be like the Kohen. Yeah, for sure, absolutely. Absolutely. That, and that's what the Gemara pick, picks up as well. Of course, you know, I, by the way, Avshalom is extremely interesting. I find him extremely interesting because on one hand, it's clear that 
he's determined at a certain point to, uh, to seize power. And he's going to tell everybody what they want to hear. He stands in the gate. Uh, what are you here for? I want judgment. Oh, you'll never get judgment from this guy. And he kisses everybody. So everybody, he's, he's, the, he's the politician. He, I'm the answer to all your problems. All different people, all different places. Some of this one guy is in favor of everybody. And he had the self-centeredness with the hair and this sounds like the ceremony of cutting his hair. He weighs his hair. Um, and you have the deception. He's going to Hebron. He's going to meanwhile get troops together to overthrow the king. So on one hand, he's, you want to say a typical politician of sorts, but, and this is the but, something to think about. Fundamentally, what drives Avshalom, what really drives this guy is clear in the story. What drives him is he really believes what, what angered him, what set him against David is the story of Tamar, Amnon and Tamar. He waits two years for the king to, to judge, to do the right thing, to punish Amnon, whatever the punishment will be. It doesn't happen. And what drives this guy, when he says, I would like to be a, 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 a judge. And this is what's interesting about the book. In my view, there's something great. He starts off as a very good guy. He starts off basically, he starts off as David, really. At least as good, if not better. He has good instincts. He is ruthless. He's also clever, but so is David. And then you need that in this book to be to, to, to be to re, to remain king. But somehow it, every, somehow the wheels fall off the wagon because, and fundamentally it's David's mistreatment. David doesn't bring him back. David doesn't forgive him. Had David forgiven him and said, no, you're right. Had David done the right thing by, by, by Tamar, this would never happen. I find this very interesting because in terms of politics, I see this all the time. Some very good people in politics. But we're in a certain arena where it's very hard to be honest. That is to say, to be truly honest, because you, you want to get things done. It's all about making deals. And it's all about, you know, appealing to people. You, you can tell the truth, but you can't tell the whole truth. The prophet tells the whole truth. That's why the prophet's life expectancy is not that long in the Bible. But the, um, the king doesn't. So I think Avshalom is a very good example of, of the dangers of politics. Maybe which more is against. Uh, now, there is another character that we'll get to next week. I want to start with another character who's a quasi-Nazir character. Um, in, yes. Shim Bar Yochai feels on fire. He's totally an outsider. It doesn't totally. discuss what he's drinking, but it doesn't look like wine. And I'm sure it's not getting his hair cut in the cave. And, you know, it, it's interesting, this kind of excessive personality that um hey, I'll, I'll talk about Shimon and Yochai next week because there's somebody else who has is a quasi nausea who was in the same boat as Shimon ben Yochai, or maybe Shimon ben Yochai is in his boat. <laughs> um, probably the most interesting character of the Bible. I mean, Shimshon's an interesting character, there are many interesting characters, but this guy's way up on top of the list, and I taught a course on him once. Oh, yeah. His name is Elio Hanavi. Elio Hanavi. And Shimon ben Yochai have a lot in common, actually. So mm -hmm. I wanted to, talk, I didn't get to it this week. We'll start next week with Ariel Hanavi, and we'll conclude next week with Yonadav ben Reicha, who probably is a Nazir, actually, though the word Nazir is not used. He feels in, so that's next week's business. Next week we'll deal, we'll conclude next week with Eliyahu, the man with the long hair. Yeah. He is the man with the long hair. And I'll, I'll address what you said about Shimon ben Yochai, who strikes me in the same boat as Eliyahu. You're right, the outsider beyond belief. 
Street. There's a reason that these that the Kabbalist chose Shimon ben Yochai as the main person. It's not an accident. Um, with the Zohar, Shimon ben Yochai, etc. Um, <coughs> and then we'll get to Yonadah ben Recha, which is very interesting. And complete, complete. at least we'll try to fill out the picture of the biblical Nazir. Then after Pesach, in the Rifka Rosenwein uh, series, we will Mishnah project, we will deal with the Mishnah and the Gemara, which is, uh, that's fascinating altogether. Okay, so we'll stop at this point. If anybody has more comments or questions, you can email me, dsilber at rishon.org. Maxine, do you have any announcements? Um, yes, I do. So uh, one of them being the Rappaport Lecture, uh, which is happening this Sunday. Um, just a moment. About the Seder, right? Yes, it is. Um, sorry, just pulling up the details. Um, just a moment. If I may add, he wrote a fascinating book on the Seder. Right. It should be very interesting. It should be a very interesting uh, lecture. The Seder within the Seder. Mm -hmm. Yes. And uh, that. Tell your friends about it. It should be very good. Yes. That's at uh, noon this Sunday, March 19th. Um, and the lecture is being delivered by uh, Rabbi Nathan Lauer. Um, Laffer. Laffer, yes. Um, and uh, because of that, uh, we're shifting um, Rabbi Lieben's class uh, to 1.30, um, just to fit everything in. And uh, so I guess looking forward to seeing you all next weekend uh, before then uh, for this lecture. Um, would uh, Can I interrupt just for a moment? This is Sandra Rappaport and our family is sponsoring yeah. the Rappaport uh, pre-Pesach lecture. It's, um, it's the 24th. Uh, lecture, and um, we've been doing this for almost a quarter century, and um, David Silber is an instrumental in, uh, in um, helping to set this up and make it happen year after year, and we've, we've worked collaboratively to get wonderful lectures, uh, setting us up for the, the Pesach holiday, so I'd invite uh, the public, everybody, uh, to come. Um, we've had fabulous responses year after year, and um, so please, everyone, make the time to come this Sunday, the 19th at 12 noon, uh, tune in on Zoom, but you need to register. It's free of charge, but in order to receive your Zoom link, um, you need to register with Drisha. So um, I, I, I invite you all to register, to come, to enjoy it and uh, get us ready for Pesach. Um, please do come and thank you very much. Thank you. Um, so much gratitude to you and your family. Oh, it's a pleasure yeah. to do it. And thank you. Thank and, you so much. Um, and yeah, you can uh, register for that at rapaport.drisha.org. Right. And uh, tell your friends as well. Thank you. Thanks so much. Mm -hmm. Okay. Enjoy the rest of your day.